This is Principles in Practice, a Shape of Advice podcast brought to you by Professional Planner and BlackRock. My name is Tan Sharp and I'm the editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational style exploration of the different elements of practice management for advisors, drawing on the knowledge and experience of people that contribute to the delivery of advice to Australian consumers. Feel free to visit professionalplanner.com.au or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. I'm joined today by Simon Hoyle, Head of Market Insight at Core Data, and Paul Barrett, CEO of AZNGA Group. Good afternoon, gentlemen. G'day, Matt. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having us. Yeah, look, great to have you both here to discuss the topic, coming of age, what does a professionalised advice uh, industry mean for business models? And I, I couldn't think of two individuals better equipped for a conversation that uh, hopefully extrapolates on some of the components of what advice practices look like today and also get into a bit of uh, crystal ball gazing about what the future might hold. And um, yeah, look, I also want to uh, get a, a few numbers out of you both as well, just to kind of get a sense for, you know, what should, cost, um, you know, practices, how, how they cost up their services, what is it going to you know, cost them to deliver their services in the future and, and perhaps what profit margins might be there embedded within uh, well-run businesses. So, yeah, look, a lot to cover today. But to start with, Simon, I just wanted to, you know, talk to you a little bit about the industry, you know, as we know it. To, to what extent does a professionalised industry need to have business models that look any different really than they do today? The, the basic answer to that, Matt, is the business models need to look different and, and, and become different because being a profession is different from what financial advice was previously and, and it's different from where financial advice has come from. Um, there's a definition of professions I go back to quite often just as a reference point and a bit of a reminder about what it's all about. It's just a single sentence and I'll, I'll run through it. It just says, a profession is a vocation founded on specialised educational training, and we all know what that is, we know what that looks like, the purpose of which is to supply disinterested counsel and service to others for a direct and definite compensation, wholly apart from the expectation of other business gain, right? If we break that down a little bit, um, we look at the word disinterest. It means it's not influenced by uh, considerations of personal advantage, right? It's all done in the interests of the client. Um, but one of the key words in, the, in that description is, is service. Um, selling a service is fundamental to what a profession is. Professional services are quite different things to sell than, than products are. Um, so that's the first reason business models need to change because they're selling something different now uh, than, than they have historically or they have done traditionally. It's kind of yeah. contentious in a way when you think about it, right? I mean, what you're saying there is advice businesses to date have been product sales mechanisms and now they're becoming service businesses. It's a, it's a little bit of a contentious point. Look, I'll have that argument with anybody. The, the, the history of financial advice, the background of financial advice is that it has grown out of a, a product sales culture and a product sales um, uh, mechanism, if, if you like. Um, there are people who have had difficulty making the transition from that product-based approach to life to the services-based approach to life. There are people who have made that transition more easily. And there are some for whom it's not an issue because they're coming into the industry or coming into the profession at a time where product is just not, not um, 
doesn't have the same uh, profile or position that that it used used to have. Um, and just going back to that definition, Matt, I just also want to say that that idea of the direct and definite compensation piece comes into the picture as well. Um, direct means it comes from the client to the to the professional, so it doesn't go through some other channel to to get to the to the advisor. And definite means that it is it is not vague. It means it's fixed and it's exact and it's known upfront, and you can you can tell the consumer what the service is going to cost. Mm. Um, all of those things come into into the mix, mm. and and because of that, the business models that had been appropriate and uh, and adequate for supporting a product sale function aren't as quite aren't quite as fit for purpose when it comes to selling selling a service. Mm. Yeah, no. It's and and Paul, um, we'd love to bring you in here. Uh, do you agree with um, what Simon is saying? And to what extent are business models really having to change in order to facilitate um, what 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 Simon's suggesting is quite actually a different, uh, you know, a different way of business, right? Well, thanks, Matt. Look, it's not a it's not a case of changing. It's a case of complete transformation. Mm. You can't compare the post-Hain profession to the pre-Hain industry. They are two extremely different sectors of, of our economy hmm. uh, and they don't bear much resemblance to one another at all. Well, uh, it, It's worth examining how we got here. I mean, you, you know, I mean, I was inside the institutions working in senior roles for many years pre-Hain uh, and I can tell you, at times, that was a lonely existence because when you're an advice person, an executive in charge of advice businesses inside, you know, a big institution that is driving a product sales culture, uh, it can feel lonely. And, 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 you know, it's worth just briefly examining why we got to where we got and why Simon, mm. I actually agree with Simon. Mm. And, but mind you, it's worth saying not everyone was in that position. There are plenty of people who would be listening to that who are never in that position. Mm. Who, who would have always been uh, a service-based business. But let's face it, the great majority probably were in that product sales uh, funnel. And that's because the institutions that own these advice businesses, the way these divisions were structured is the advice businesses often reported into the product divisions. And what, what that leads to is this cultural alignment problem because advice businesses were seen as a means to an end. Now, in all spheres of your life, you never want to be a means to an end, okay? You, you always want to be an end in and of itself. And I just feel for so long the advice businesses were a means to an end, distribution fund, whatever you want to call it. And as a result, they didn't get the investment they, that was required in things like technology, quality assurance, et cetera, to truly rise above you know, some of the obvious uh, problems. Now, it wasn't all bad, mind you, because the counter-argument to this is that in that product world, you know, banks, for example, were able to enable affordable advice to be distributed on just mm. about every street corner in Australia. Mm. And for the most part, the consumers who got that advice were better off because they were put into quality products and if they hadn't had that advice interaction, they probably wouldn't have that savings plan in place or that insurance mm. policy in place. So I think it's worth acknowledging that net-net, it's probably actually a, a, a positive element to the past. That said... We all know there were many costs as well to that model and ultimately that model no longer exists. Mm. Um, for the future, of course, the business models must be very, very different. Mm. Uh, you'll see an increase in costs as these SME businesses have to invest in things they didn't before and that's just an equalisation mm. because up until now, 
there's been this great subsidisation of the uh, the the process of giving advice. That subsidisation has gone. Mm. The costs are now equalising, and SME businesses that remain in the sector are having to front up and pay the true cost to run these businesses. Mm. In doing so, cost of advice is going up, prices going up, but demand is also going up. So. I think net-net these businesses will be potentially better off in the future than they ever have been in the past. But, yep, they need to look different. Yeah, and, and I want to stick with you for a moment. What, what, what kinds of people are running these businesses? Um, previously, perhaps the advice industry has been referred to as a bit of a cottage industry. Um, you know, obviously the, within the large networks, those networks were owned and controlled by uh, the banks. But, um, you know, traditionally advisors have run their practices, right, are uh, advisors, the business owners and, and and running the practices of these new enterprises or is the advice industry attracting, you know, new talent with, um, you, you know, different types of backgrounds? Um, who's solving these conundrums and puzzles for the future? A good question. I think, I think the answer in terms of what will it look like in the future is fairly positive. I think, you know, the, the, the profession is starting to attract quality people Young people into universities are now starting to think, well, maybe this is a career I want to go after because the, the, the reputation and image of the, of the sector is improving. Now, there's a long way to go, uh, but I think in the years to come, if we get this right, and we are, that we will attract a lot more young talent in. But also I'm seeing a lot of people coming out of other sectors, other professions, you know, other sectors of the economy into the financial advisory sector uh, whether they be entrepreneurs, business managers, GMs, et cetera, that they're coming in hmm. and looking to run complex SME businesses, hmm. multidisciplinary firms you know, with, with deep specialist capability, looking to get really sharp around their value proposition to consumer, their value proposition to the employee, and ultimately their shareholder value proposition. You know, I'm, I'm having conversations with business owners now like, hey, let's, let's design our enterprise architecture. Hmm. Now, that sort of language, that's never been used before, um, and it's being used now. People are talking about their cybersecurity policy. Now, they're talking about client acquisition, client retention strategies, SEO marketing, all of this stuff. So you're getting an element of sophistication coming in. Why? Because most people I talk to are bullish on the future of the sector. They see it as it's gone through this. It's compressed almost this sort of 10-year transformation that was happening at snail's pace has been compressed into about a 24-month period through the Hain Commission and other things. Mm. And it's almost forced, like a turbocharger on a car, you know, it's almost force-fed the change. And we're now, it's like we've fast-forwarded about five to ten years. And so entrepreneurs are saying, well, that's great because all that painful change in cost associated with that's done. There's clear air for the first time. And I, I see that in our network with the, the, the attitude of our, our people that for the first time they're, they're buoyant, they're energetic, they've got clear air. Um, and look, but, but the other thing, you know, the counter to that is a lot of people who find themselves in the CEO roles today are practitioners and they've kind of got there just because they've been in, this, in the seat for so long. And they're the first people in my experience to put their hand up and say, hey, I'm not a CEO, I need some help. And that's where firms like AZNGA and others can come in and actually assist. Yeah. And, and, and so also, the, yeah, yeah. It, Sorry, go, it, go Simon. It, it's also tr true to say that, that, Business models supporting advisors just simply have have to change, as as Paul has has said. Um, we we know from work that we do with consumers um, consistently that the vast majority of people don't regard advisors as professionals right now, 
uh, in the same sense as they regard doctors and lawyers and engineers and those sorts of, of established professions and the people working in them as professionals. It's about a third of people do think advisors are professionals and the rest don't. But it's also quite telling that around about nine out of 10 consumers, near enough, expect financial advisors to be held to exactly the same sorts of standards and modes of behaviour as other recognised professionals. So I guess one angle on this is to say that if you don't professionalise um, and if you don't adopt business models to support the delivery of professional services, you're actually not going to have a business at all. Uh, there's going to be no consumer demand for, for, for the services that advisors provide. And it, then it really doesn't matter what your business model is. If there's no consumer demand for it, it just makes no difference. Yeah. And look, you, Simon, you've tracked, you know, the ebbs and flows of the, the FAR register and kind of watched um, probably with great interest um, the last couple of years of a, bit, a little bit of bloodletting and perhaps some new talent coming in. Do you think the um, practice owners or, or advisors are equipped to be able to, you know, engineer these, you know, new businesses? Uh, is it an old dogs and, and new tricks kind of scenario? Or do you think that, you know, there's a genuine attraction um, with for new talent and, and, and new people coming into the industry to bring new ideas? Yeah, so I think that some advisors have made the transition to business owners um, or, or have set themselves up, have always been good business mm. owners. And Paul would know would know people like that. Some have struggled. Um, and uh, it's those who are struggling a little bit who are looking to licensees mm. and to organizations like Paul's um, to, to provide them with the input, the consulting services, the, 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 the support that they need to create the right business models and create the right sorts of, uh, of structures to, to deliver uh, personal services, uh, uh, professional services. Personal services is another kind of professional together. But, um, but yeah, so, so um, it, it's a mix of, of both. We've seen the number of advisors on the register fall. Um, nobody's surprised by the fact that the number has declined. The fact that it's declined so much has been a, a little bit alarming. Um, but they're not necessarily leaving the industry because they're not good business people they're leaving the industry for a range of, of other factors, yeah. largely linked, we think, to the education standards. This episode is proudly sponsored by BlackRock. As a fiduciary to investors and a leading provider of financial technology, BlackRock helps millions of people build savings that serve them throughout their lives by making investing easier and more affordable. From integrating environmental, social and governance practices into its investment processes to creating positive impact by serving communities in Australia, BlackRock is dedicated to helping clients, employees, shareholders and communities achieve long-term financial well-being. To learn how BlackRock can help you and your clients, please visit the BlackRock Australia website. Yeah, look, let's put some numbers around some of this conversation now. Um, Paul, what are you seeing in terms of What's an advice business kind of look like today? What should advice businesses from, a, you know, wh however you want to put numbers around it? I know, you know, in our prep for this session, we talked about, you know, the, the old way of, um, you know, uh, valuing businesses by, you know, recurring uh, revenue. And we just know that that's not how businesses are valued these days. How businesses value these days, what should advice practices look like? you know, from a, a, a profit margin or, or an EBIT or a revenue perspective and, and you know, may, maybe paint a picture for, you know, in a few years' time, what, what, 
could some of the, how large could some of these businesses get, and is there a place for for smaller ones to continue to um, to uh, to to exist? Yeah, look, firstly, I mean, M&A, if you look at M&A practices, it sort of illuminates where we've come from and where we're, we're going to because it wasn't that long ago that when you were doing M&A, you'd value a business based on a multiple of recurring revenue and, and you'd be somewhere in the threes or fours, right? Hmm. And the term that was often used was, well, we're going to buy passive income. And that, tell, that tells you everything you need to know about where we were then. You know, passive income, to me, when I hear that, I hear, well, that's income we're doing not much. Right, and th- there was that, that actually was somewhat uh, prevalent. These days, when you're doing M and A, you're talking about you know client segment profitability. You're talking about demographics of client bases. You're talking about client concentration. You're talking about uh, multiples of EBIT, EBITDA. You're looking at NPAT multiples. You, you run a whole range of different filters. Enterprise value. You look at balance sheet. There's so many factors you look at, and I mean due diligence is an extensive process now, and so that, that that's quite illuminating in terms of how people look at, at M&A opportunities and the parallel to where the industry's at. In terms of your questions around, you know, what, what do the firms of the future look like? Um, look, I think there's a – I've talked a lot about scale in the past. I've talked a lot about the fact that there's a great opportunity for businesses to partner with people with capital, to look for capacity and capability and expand the scale of their operation. And you've probably heard me talk about super firms. And I do think there is an emerging uh, class of operator that wants to target 20 million plus of revenue with a 30% EBIT margin and build a household brand and do so with a really sharp shareholder value proposition, employee value proposition, client value proposition. And, and that's, those firms are on the march. Um, we're seeing it in our network. We're seeing people create these visions for these firms in our network. But at the other end, you're seeing boutique firms realise that they've got something special too. You've got these smaller firms that might have access to some really clearly defined marketplace or service or capability, and they're quite happy being specialists, being small and delivering that strategy. But I think the point is... How big, small in that that context? Well, I I, want to resist getting into a definition about what's small and what's large. What I'll say is this. You can be small, you can be medium-sized, and you can be large, and you can be successful or unsuccessful in any of those size categories, right? Mm. What you have to make sure you've got is two things, clear strategy, and I mean really clear, very detailed, clear strategy, and excellent execution of that strategy. Yeah, but come on, like, well, give me like some kind of guidance on what, what you're talking about when you, when you talk about well, we, well, our smallest firm that we invest in, is a $1.7 million revenue firm Hmm. that has a very clear strategy, a very clear demographic, very clear regional um, location, and and they are excellent at execution. Yeah. And and, and they've got their own inbuilt systems that they've built to do various – very very clean business, very profitable. Okay, but they're they're small. Our largest business, equally clear on their strategy, but a lot bigger on revenue terms. But here's the key. Here's the key. You don't want to be caught bumbling along. Okay, you don't want to be caught with an unclear strategy and or poor execution. You can be large or medium or small. If you're bumbling along, your financials will reflect a gradual drift or even a, a steeper drift and ultimately you're not growing and your staff aren't probably that, that happy. They're on the verge. They'll be, they'll be on the departure lounge at some point, as will your clients, as will your shareholders, and you, you don't have great enterprise architecture either. So you want to make sure, no matter how big or small you are, you're clear on your strategy and have excellent execution. 
Yeah. I pick up on that point. Paul, we're doing some work at the moment. We're working with a range of different advice practices. They're from different licensees and they they span the, the, the gamut from small to large and different locations and all sorts of things. And we've asked them some fairly basic metrics inside the business, like how long does it take to produce a simple statement of advice? How long does it take to produce a comprehensive statement of advice, record of advice, and, and so on? And the variation in the time it takes, even in these businesses, which are regarded by their own licensees as being outstanding businesses, is absolutely startling. It takes about 12 and a half hours to do a simple statement of advice, but that ranges from a low of three hours to a high of 30. And that variation in what it takes to produce what is ultimately not exactly a standardized document, but you know a, a well-recognized document is absolutely staggering. I've got to go back and check the numbers. But that raises the question. Now, this sort of variation in business process can kill a business. A business that's taking 30 hours to produce a document, obviously, it's got some issues that the business that's taking three hours hasn't got. So, how do you... The question we're starting to drive into is how do you systemize processes oh, okay. while still customizing advice? That's, that's a symptom. That's purely a symptom of the fact that these businesses haven't been invested in. Hmm. Okay, Because the problems you're talking about, Simon, like you know, turnaround times for SOAs. Like these are not these are not difficult problems to solve. Okay, we're talking about services businesses here. Services businesses don't have to manage inventory or stock. They don't have accounts payable and receivable. They don't have freight costs. They don't have logistics management. They don't have these complex distribution channels or warehouses to, to, to keep things in. They're, they're providing services, and the, and the, the 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 actual you know the purist in me looks at it and says, well. You know, to take to take a an investment solution or a financial advice solution to a client should be easier than taking than than you know manufacturing I don't know beer and selling it to a consumer in the other side of the country. Um, but it seems that it's not. Why? Because these businesses haven't been invested in, and they're starting to be invested in. There are smart entrepreneurs all over the sector now putting money into these firms. And you watch the next five years, you'll see massive efficiency gains, massive efficiency dividends. As people come in, and the first thing they do when confronting a problem like the one you've articulated is they actually measure the time taken for these tasks and they look at process and procedures before they look at tech. And, and, they, and they enhance processes and procedures and get consistency there. Then they bring tech in. And, of course, they're clear about their strategies, as I said before. So I think profit margins in our sector, whilst they've gone down in the last 12 months from, in my experience, mid-30s to mid to high 20s, they're going to go back up again to mid-30s and beyond over the next five years. Yeah, and it, you know, it really points to, because the, the topic of this discussion is, you know, tying this this idea of a professionalised industry to what the nature of those business models are like, right? And you, you kind of touched on it um, in one of your earlier comments, Paul, around the importance of, I guess, getting closer to the client or, um, you know, being part of the business that is, um, you know, not disintermediated or not further away from the client, in fact, investing in the part that is closest to the client, right? And um, and that, that, that also marries up with that idea of professionalism, right? I mean, um, advisors, you know, with FASIA, the code of ethics and everything that's coming through, they're finding themselves in the box seat with the clients, responsible for their relationship with their client, answerable to their relationship with the client and fiduciaries, you know, to their clients. So these business models have to reflect that, right? They do and they're so attractive as an investor. You know, to come into a sector right now where you've got demand and supply 
systemically changing in in the favour of the sector. You've got the modernisation of these companies that we're talking about uh, and and you've got this sort of advice margin being really valuable. Hmm. Uh, It's it's a great time to come into the sector and uh, and I think it's probably the best in, in my career. If you were to pick one moment to enter into the sector, it'd be now. Yeah, now I don't think a conversation of this nature, you know, we could, um, you know, finish it without talking about. Not that I'm saying we're finished. We're 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 getting close, and it's been an awesome conversation. Uh, a couple more things I want to throw at you, but but definitely one of them is that um, the the idea about you know the, the regulatory system. Maybe it's a, we over talk it a little bit. Um, but certainly this idea of, um, uh, you know, the licensing regime will have something to do surely with business models in the future, right? Um, you know, the detachment from um, this licensee structure that we can kind of perhaps see come down the pipeline in a few years' time, uh, you know, single reg- or individual registration of advisors. You know, Simon, I know you've kind of done some thinking around this. What might that, what impact might that have on business models? Yeah, so... The role of there's no doubt the role of the licensee is changing and has to change. Um, if I'm reading it right, the licensee of the future, uh, uh, absent any sort of regulatory change that abolishes licensing altogether, the 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 nature of the licensee is going to become something actually more akin to the business that Paul is is running. It's going to be a provider of professional services, a provider of support services to the advice businesses. Um, yes. For the time being, and until we get regulatory change, we've got the licensing regime, so we've got the licensee uh, authorized rep relationship. Um, but I- even if you take that out of the picture, there is still a role for organizations of some description to play in providing the services and, and the support that, that advice practices need as professional services firms. So, licensees need to evolve their offer. They need to recognize that the licensing mm. aspect of it is absolutely the least valuable thing they do yeah. um, and it doesn't doesn't really you know fundamentally change what those licensee businesses need to be in future whether that licensing thing remains or, or not um, they, they they need to support the advisors and to the point that was made a moment ago it's the advisors who are in the box seat it's the advisors who are closest to the client um, and control the relationship with the client irrespective of what the law says about who's responsible for the delivery of advice. The client has a relationship with the advisor, not with the licensee. And so um, the, the nature of, the, of those licensee businesses has to change as well to, yeah. to support the businesses of the advisors. What does that mean uh, in the context of business models, Paul, and, and perhaps even you know, what you're creating there, um, what, what Simon just described? Oh, well, look, I think if you jumped in the DeLorean and punched in the coordinates, uh, the 10th, the 11th, 26th or something like that, um, and you, you, you fast forward the licensing model as we know it won't exist. It'll be it'll be a thing we'll talk about. It was a relic of the past, and mm. you know even the even the current model that we've got ain't been around that long. You know, I mean the licensing yeah. model has changed regularly over the last twenty years, and it's going to change again. And and the first thing that's going to change, I think, is the license piece itself. You know, that the, the licensees used to be able to survive because they got the subsidy, the benefits of the subsidisation. So they could do the regulatory stuff, and they could and they could make money. They can't make money anymore because doing the regulatory stuff alone, they can't get paid enough for. Now that's changing. Prices going up. It has to, and they are starting to wash their face with their the fees they earn for just the licensing and regulatory component. But the people running these businesses won't be satisfied with that alone. That that's not the existence they seek. Uh, they will look for a much greater 
um, and contribution than that. And I think Simon's right. They will emerge into utility companies that are supplying a range of services to SME businesses to assist them in a number of ways. And I don't think licensees, if you ask them, if you get them to take the truth serum and you ask them what they want, they'll tell you they don't want the licensing and regulatory risk. Hmm. Okay, they used to have it, but they had the, the profits as well. Now they just have the regulatory risk. They don't have the profits. So they're, they're going to want to get rid of that regulatory risk as soon as they can. And then the emergence of some kind of you know, utility offering that, that, that brings about community, so that they bring about a community aspect as well as things like training and development uh, and yet maybe some elements of licensing, but a whole bunch of other stuff like M&A services, for example, absolutely is the way to go. And, of course, that's the business that, we've, that we have built and are building here is we're trying to do all of those things without the regulatory exposure. That's why we don't own a licence. So, you know, our, our business model kind of um, speaks for what we think about where it's all going. But, yeah, look, um, the old model is on its last legs. Will you be yeah, then? Paul's right. Where, sorry, sorry Simon, you go, mate. Um, that, that comes through loud and clear in, in the research that we do each year with, with uh, advisors about how they view their licensees too. Whatever it was that they valued in the past in the licensee relationship, what they value now is that sense of community that, that the licensee brings to the table, but also the business support services the licensee, that the licensee brings. Um, th- those are uh, emerging uh, and becoming the most valuable aspects of the advisor-licensee relationship. The licensing thing is kind of irrelevant. Yeah, and let me push that a little bit further. I mean, will those licensees, those dealer-to-dealer services businesses, if you want to kind of call it that, or or your own business, um, Paul, will will they be competing with, um, you know, top-tier consulting firms? Uh, Is there enough scale and enough um, interest in the advice sector for the likes of consulting firms to start to to really work with the advice businesses more or uh, is it not really their, um, you know, their bag? Well, it's an interesting question. I mean, you never say never. Yeah. Uh, my, my experience with some of these big-end consultancy firms is they don't have the capability at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's, it, the subject matter you know, is reasonably specialised. And, look, when you think about the sorts of things that, that the, the business owners that I talk to want, really, if you take your financial planning um, label off it, we're talking about SME businesses, right? Hmm. And the sorts of things SME businesses care about are things like managing their cash flow, uh, the things like uh, managing their balance sheet and getting access to funding and capital, succession planning, uh, you know, enabling. These are bank services. So banks are going to get back into consulting uh, advice businesses again. Uh, well, <laughs> well, I, well, I, well, the notion that banks are at a wealth management, I, I, I've, never, I've never believed. I think that... <laughs> That, that, I think they are in wealth management. They'll continue to be, but they're not. I can't see, I can't see banks sort of rushing back to the IFA community in a hurry. I'm not sure the IFA community will have them anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, look, I mean, bank, you know, banks can be useful in terms of underlying supply of things like debt and other things. But look to your question: Will consulting firms get into it? Um, well, it's an interesting question because I'm in an M&A process at the moment. Actually, now that you mention it, I'm in a bid at the moment for an asset, and on the other side is a consulting firm. So. Um, and it surprised me when I learnt that, and uh, that's probably the first sign of that that I've seen. So, interesting. Your, your, yeah, your your question and, and that experience might mean I have to focus more on that, but potentially. But I, I suspect they're going to have to make some kind of M and A play to get the expertise. Yeah. Um, look, it's been you know a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, thanks so much, both. You know, it's I think it's been quite positive as well. But it'd be nice to also. 
you know, get from both of you um, in terms of a final comment, uh, in you know, something, you know, a little bit positive um, around what, uh, you know, what your advice or what, what, would, what would you say to people coming into the industry, right? I mean, you know, we've seen all the bloodletting. We've seen perhaps uh, the industry at a bit of a nadar or, or, or a point. Um, now, perhaps as new people coming in, what can they expect? What skills should they have? And what kind of businesses um, do you think they're, they're likely to create? Do you want to go first, Simon? So they're going to come into, into, a, into a profession. That's the first thing to say. Uh, and a profession sells services, as we've already discussed. Um, services are quite different from selling products. It's not necessarily easier or harder. It's just different. Um, there, there's a different mindset and a, and a different transaction that occurs between the seller and, and the buyer when you're, when you're talking about services. You're selling yourself to a certain extent. Mm. Um, you're selling trust. Um, if there isn't a transfer of trust to to you as the advisor from the client, then you don't have a service, you don't have a business, then they're not going to buy anything from you. Um, it's the process, it's how they feel, it's it's all of those things that are as important to what the actual outcome of the advice is. At the outset, it's very hard for a consumer to say what impact the advice is going to have. They have to take the advisor's word for it. We're going to address these issues and we're going to deliver solutions for you. But they don't know that for sure. It's a leap of faith. It's an act of trust to buy that from the uh, from the advisor. So coming into an environment like that, um, it's going to be quite. It's going to be very exciting because that's a very deep, very personal relationship that you develop with the individual you're selling your services to. Um, very, very rewarding over over the long term, but quite different from a transactional product based relationship. Yeah, Paul. What are your thoughts? Oh, it is a no-brainer. Whether you be a newcomer or someone who's survived all of this change that we've gone through over the last five years plus, uh, you're in the right place. This is the single best moment in time to invest, whether that means, you know, getting a job in the sector or putting money in, buying a business, Whatever it is, this is the best time to be in the financial advice sector um, in, in probably in the history of the sector in Australia. You've got relatively clear air from a regulatory point of view for the first time. Now, there's still a few spot fires. You know, there's still a few new rigs dropping here and there, but the main the main regulatory fire front is over and, and you've got some clear air. You've got a, a, a systemic change in demand and supply that COVID actually helped. COVID acted as a catalyst, an unlikely hero in, in, in enabling the demand and supply curve to change because you've got supply falling as people exit, you've got demand going up as consumers are more anxious. And I think that's a, that's a uh, trend that's going to be here for a while. Uh, you've got capital, you've got people coming in like us and others with money who want to invest in the sector and investment has been missing in the sector for 20 years. Okay, you've got this acknowledgement by those capital players that the advice margin is the new black. People want to own that advice margin. Uh, and you've got this modernisation happening inside these SME businesses as smart people are driving scale and bringing entrepreneurial practices to the table. It's a heck of an exciting time to be coming into this marketplace. What skills would you need? Uh, if you can bring general management skills, general management is a specialist skill. Uh, if, if you've got great general management experience, you're, you're well wanted in this sector and you'll be prized, highly prized. 
uh, change management and project management. Those are the sorts of skills that are required in the modern SME mm. to, to enable all of the benefits that, that are on offer in the sector. Um, and, yeah, great time to be getting in. Yeah, look, really interesting conversation. Uh, thank you, Paul and Simon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Simon. Thank you.